a, a great deal. I don't know about your family, but we don't have a lot of heirlooms in our family. But we do have some, and I, I brought one I wanted to show you this morning. And I know you can't see this very well. This is a salt cellar. And for those of you who don't know what a salt cellar is, that's what folks used before they had salt shakers. And uh, you just put the salt in here, and everybody just stuck their fingers in here. And uh, I'm sure died of many things after doing that. Um, but uh, they just, you know, passed it around. Uh, in, in old days, I don't know if this was true uh, in my great-grandparents' time, but in old days it started at the head of the table. And the, uh, the head of the household would take the salt first and then pass it around. It was almost a ceremonious thing. But this, this old salt cellar belonged to my great-grandparents on my father's side. It's the only item that, that as far as I know, that any of us have that go back that far, uh, just to our great-grandparents. And so it's important to us. It's, it's not a piece of fine china or anything. Uh, if you look closely at it, it's made out of glass, and it's been obviously dropped. It's chipped a few places. You know, it, it, it doesn't have a whole lot of uh, intrinsic value uh, as far as uh, anybody would be concerned except us. But it's important to us because it is a, a link uh, with that previous generation, and it was passed down from my great-grandfather to my grandfather, who was his eldest child of 15, uh, passed down from him to my father, who was the eldest child of five, uh, and then passed down to me because I am the uh, eldest and only son, uh, and so it's in my care. Now, I have a cousin who passed away last year, and uh, until he did, every time I heard from him, which wasn't very often, but every time I heard from him, he asked about that salt cellar. <laughs> Do you still have the salt cellar? I mean, when he asked, he asked intently, like he was going to kill me if the answer was no. <laughs> Do you still have it? You know the importance of that salt cellar. It's got to stay in the family. Yes, I understand that, Joe. Thank you. Uh, and he would ask me that every time because he... He wanted that so badly to stay uh, within the family. Uh, and so it is an heirloom. Well, we have spiritual heirlooms too. I didn't grow up in Churches of Christ, but I've been a member now for 55 years. And uh, there are some things that I have inherited from those who went before, some spiritual heirlooms that have been passed down from generation to generation and if you're a member of the Church of Christ, they are part of your spiritual heritage too. They're your heirlooms also. And, and they're important because they need to be kept and they need to be guarded and they need to be treasured. We need to know how valuable they are. You know, Paul said to the Thessalonians that they should test everything and hold fast to that which is good. Test everything. And if something's good, hold on to it. Don't let go. And that's what we need to do with our spiritual uh, heirlooms. We are who we are largely because of these spiritual heirlooms. And so they're important to us. They need to be kept. They need to be guarded. And I want to talk to you about a few of them this morning, some that are particularly important to me. And, and as I talk about these things, you might have your own list of spiritual heirlooms. But here's some of the ones that, that I think are of greatest importance and greatest value that have been handed down from generation to generation. The first one that comes to my mind 
is our high regard for Scripture. Uh, that just means the world to me, uh, that we value the Scriptures so much. And you might be sitting there thinking, but don't all churches have a high regard for Scripture? And the answer to that question is yes and no. All churches speak highly of Scripture, but not all churches read the Scripture. Not all churches emphasize knowing the Scripture. Not all churches emphasize following the Scripture and recognize the authority of the Scripture. And some are quite ready to push it aside when the Scripture no longer suits them or when culture changes and they don't feel that the Scripture is as relevant as they'd like for it to be. But we haven't done that. And I'm thankful that we haven't. One of the, the main things that attracted me to the Church of Christ in the first place was this emphasis on Scripture and the actual preaching of Scripture and teaching of Scripture. I started going to the Church of Christ with Linda when we were both teenagers, and I was so impressed with her knowledge of the Bible. You know, here she was just a, just a kid, but she knew a lot of Scripture, and she learned that Scripture at church as well as learning it at home. And when I would go to church, I was impressed with preaching because it was always from the Bible. It was always from the Scripture. And old brother Dwight Holland always made note when I was there. And he would lean over the pulpit and look down at me particularly <laughs> as he quoted Scripture after Scripture that he thought I needed to hear. But I was thankful that he was preaching the Bible. And I, I appreciated the, the assumption that Scripture can be understood by the ordinary person. That we could actually read the Bible, understand the Bible, and that it has an important message for our lives. See, I grew up thinking of the Bible as kind of a religious relic. We had Bibles all over the place where I went to church. We had Bibles uh, at home. But the Bible was not something that we actively used. It wasn't something that we, that we really read from. And I had no idea what the Bible actually said or what it was supposed to mean for me or my life. But it was different in the Church of Christ, and, and I was attracted by that difference. Now, if you grew up in the church, you may not realize what a precious gift that attitude towards Scripture and that use of Scripture really is. You may just kind of take it for granted, but don't. Don't. I'm sure that when my... Uh, grandfather and his siblings uh, sat around the table and had that salt cellar on the table. They probably didn't think much of it. They probably didn't think, you know, some dummy a couple of generations from now is going to use it in a sermon. Uh, you know, they, they just thought of it as something ordinary. They just probably took it for granted. But we shouldn't take for granted the blessing of a high regard for uh, the Scripture and, and I hope that you, take, uh, that you have an appreciation for that now and that you'll do all that you can to maintain that high, that high view of Scripture and pass it on to your children. All Scripture is inspired by God, breathed out by God, Paul said. And therefore, it is also useful. It's profitable. But it's only useful if we use it. You can't absorb it by carrying it around. It won't radiate something into you by sitting on the shelf. But it, it is a blessing to you when you read it and when you live by its teachings. So that high view of Scripture is one of our great 
spiritual heirlooms. Another one that, that I think is so valuable is, is our emphasis on baptism and on the Lord's Supper. Now, once again, uh, you might think that these are common to all Christian groups, but, but they're not. They're really not. Both of these are often considered as simply ritual, just symbolic acts that people go through without any spiritual value. They're kind of like options on a car. You know, you go to buy a new car, and uh, there are all those options that you can get on it. You know, it's still a car, and you can still drive it, even if you don't get all the options. And that's the way a lot of people think about about the Lord's Supper and about baptism, that those are just kind of add-ons. You know, you've still, got the, you've still got Christian faith. You've still got the church without that. But the Bible indicates otherwise. And that's been recognized for a long, long time in churches of Christ. And I'm thankful that it has been. We are one of only a few groups who participate in the Lord's Supper every Sunday. Did you know that? There aren't many folks who do that. But we do. We always have. Some observe it very seldom. Some, uh, the Lord's Supper, some only on special days, and some almost never. Some have just kind of dispensed with it altogether. And particularly, uh, you know, during a, a time of, of this uh, pandemic, a lot, a lot of churches, just, no, 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 we'll just stop having that. You know, we won't ever do that because that's dangerous to do. And baptism has been largely pushed aside from the place given to it in Scripture as just some kind of outward symbol of a, of a person's faith, as an outward expression of an inward grace is the way that it's frequently put. Something the Bible never says. The Bible never describes baptism that way. And yet so many people do describe it that way. In reality, the Bible says that both baptism and the Lord's Supper are occasions when something real is actually taking place. Think for a moment about the Lord's Supper that we just observed. The bread and the cup are symbolic, of course, of the body and blood of Jesus. But what happens when we are partaking of that? Is it just a ritual? Not according to Scripture. According to Scripture, when we take of the, uh, the, the emblems of the Lord's Supper, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until He comes. We're actually making that proclamation. We are declaring to the world that we believe that Jesus died for our sins. And we're declaring to the world that he is going to come again. We are proclaiming his death until he comes. And in addition to that proclamation, we are actually communing with one another. And we are communing with the Lord himself. That's why we call it communion. We're having fellowship with each other and fellowship with the Lord. So it's a great moment. It's a great occasion. It's not just a symbol. It's what we're doing. It's what's actually taking place. And in the same way, Scripture says of baptism that we are buried with Christ when we are baptized. That we are dying to sin and being raised to newness of life. And that it is this act of faith that is, quote, for the forgiveness of our sins. So it's far more important than most people think that it is. And I'm thankful I found that out 55 years ago. And I hope you found that out too. And I hope that these spiritual heirlooms are as important to you as Scripture suggests that they ought to be. Some are diminishing these. 
Some even in churches of Christ are diminishing the importance of these. But we need to hold on to them. We need to hold fast to that which is good and to guard them because they have been handed down to us, but even more because of where they came from. And I'm not talking about just they came from our spiritual ancestors. They came from God's word. And that's why our spiritual ancestors treasured them, and that's why we ought to treasure them. But like our high view of Scripture, they're not going to do us any good unless we put them into practice. Baptism is only going to help you if you're baptized into Jesus. The Lord's Supper is only going to be an act of sharing and fellowship with Christ and with the body of Christ if you're part of that body. We need to treasure these heirlooms. We need to put them into practice. Another heirloom that I'm so thankful for is our, our high view of the church. What do I mean by that? A lot of people don't have much, much use for the church. They don't have a very high regard for the church. And there are a lot of reasons for that. Some people don't have much use for the church because they've had bad experiences with the church. A few years ago, Linda and I were uh, traveling by plane, and I was sitting next to a, a woman, and uh, she was reading uh, a book. I don't remember what book it was, but it was a, a book having to do with Christian faith. And so we started a conversation, and I asked her about her, her beliefs, and, uh, you know, and she had, talked about how important faith was to her. And she said, so what kind of work do you do? And I said, well, I'm a minister. And she's sort of darkened you know, at that point. And, and she said, well, I don't have any use for the church. And I said, really, you, you are so interested in Jesus and so interested in Scripture, but you don't have any regard for church. Why? She began to relate that she'd had some very bad experience with church. And that bad experience had turned her off so that she was ready to join the, the group that a few decades ago was saying, Jesus, yes, but the church, no. Another reason a lot of people don't have much use for the church is because of an overemphasis in the evangelical world on a personal relationship with God and with the assumption that the church is just an unnecessary option, that what really counts is just me and Jesus, and that's it. Scripture doesn't say that. doesn't talk about that. It does talk about a personal relationship. Yes, we should have that, but not at the expense of the church. Some people don't care much about church because of denominational confusion, because there's so many churches. How can it be important to be a part of any one? And so they just assume that none of them really have any value. They don't have much use for church at all. But what does the Bible say about the church? The Bible says that the church is the body of Christ. And we believe that, don't we? It also says that the church is the bride of Christ. And we're thankful to be joined to him in that way. How can that be unimportant? How can that be optional not to be a part of the body of Christ, not to be a part of the bride of Christ for which we died? You see, what we have done in churches of Christ, and I'm not trying to suggest we've done everything right, because we haven't. But we've done a lot of things right, and one of the things that we've done right is we've avoided the individualism that says that what's important is only what's important to me. 
That if it's not important to me, it's not important. So if church is not important to me, it's not important. You see, Scripture calls on us to drop that because that's a self-centered, fleshly spirit. What we really need to see is that God has called us together into his body, into one body, so that we can together share in the blessings of Christ and share in the ministering to other people and share in the fellowship that we all need. We recognize the role of the church in helping to form us into the likeness of Christ. I don't know about you, but I'm well aware that I would, I would not be who I am were it not for the influence of other Christians on me who have helped me to be more of what Christ would have me to be. We recognize the role of the church in encouraging us in our faith. We come together week after week and midweek and at other times because we need encouragement. And God knows that we are out in this world where we are misled and lied to and beaten up and battered and we need to be able to come together in fellowship and to encourage one another in our faith. We need people who stand with us in times of need, and that's what the church is about. We weep with those who weep, and we rejoice with those who rejoice. We need that kind of fellowship from other people. We need each other. We need this, those opportunities that are given to us to minister to others both inside and outside the body, and not just to think about ourselves and about what pleases me and what turns me on and what did I get out of that. But what am I giving to that? What am I giving because I follow Jesus? How am I serving because I follow Jesus? We haven't done these things perfectly, but we don't give up trying, and we don't say it doesn't matter because we know that it does. The Bible tells us that when we were baptized into Christ, we were baptized into the body of Christ. It's one of the reasons that baptism is so important, because it not only puts us into Jesus, it puts us into his family. And we're baptized into the body of Christ, so the, the church is inextricably wound up with our, our, found, our, our salvation. They go hand in hand, and that's a focus that we have kept down through the generations, and it's a focus that we need to continue to keep. It's a spiritual heirloom. And another one is the importance of the role of the individual Christian. The church is not a club. The church is not just something that we pay our dues to. And, and it's not just something where we are observers, but where we are all participants in the Protestant Reformation, it was called the priesthood of all believers. You see, they were reacting against the, the priesthood of the priesthood, where the whole idea was the only people who can really communicate with God are the clergy. And the only people who can really understand Scripture are the clergy. And the only people who can really pray are the clergy. And so they have to pray for you. You can't approach God on your own. And the only people who have a real service to perform in God's kingdom are the specially set-apart ones. And in the Protestant Reformation, those folks said, no, that's not true. The Bible calls all of us into service to Christ. We are a priesthood of all believers. We can all pray directly to God. We can all read and understand his word. We can all tell the good news to other people. 
We are all called into that ministry. That's why we don't like religious titles. That's why we don't have a hierarchy of leadership. That's why we recognize that everybody's equal in God's sight, as Paul emphasized in Romans and in 1 Corinthians, that, the, that one part of the body cannot say to the other part, I have no need of you, because we all have a part to play. We all have a role to play. And our big challenge isn't knowing that we collectively are the body of Christ and knowing that we are collectively called to serve, but it is the challenge of making certain that we are all using what God has given us, that we are living up to that calling. That's part of our heritage, the fact that we have the privilege of doing that. That's an heirloom. That's a blessing that's been given to us. Then one other heirloom I want to mention, and that's the concept of the restoration of the church. I mentioned a minute ago the expression Protestant Reformation. Back in the 15th and 16th centuries, there were many who rose up in protest against the excesses of Roman Catholicism, and they sought to reform the faith. And so we speak of the Protestant, Protestant Reformation. They wanted to reform it. They wanted to improve it. And it was a noble movement. It was a noble gesture, and a lot of people sacrificed a lot for it. But our concept is a bit different in what we call the restoration movement. Following the lead of church leaders in the 18th and 19th centuries, we've not talked about reforming the church. We've talked about restoring it. We've talked about going back to Scripture and taking it with utmost seriousness as our guide and rejecting everything else as our guide and just letting scripture show us the way and trying to be the church the way that scripture says we're supposed to be the church and to do what it says we're supposed to do and not do what it says we shouldn't do we go back to the original as it was in the time of the apostles as nearly as we can do that in our own cultural setting and it works out a bit differently in various cultures but we have that same goal that same drive that same concept, that we want to restore that which was in the beginning because we've gotten away from it in the world. That's rooted in the conviction that God's word is absolutely trustworthy and that by following it, we will be what God wants us to be. We will be Christians. We won't be a certain brand of Christian. We won't be a certain sect of Christianity. We won't be a certain stripe. Uh, or certain label, we'll just be Christians, we'll just be followers of Jesus. And that's why that we uh, have the form of church leadership that we do with elders and deacons and preachers and teachers, and that's why we have our simple worship that we treasure so much. As we sing uh, in, without instrumental accompaniment and without some kind of big performance, and, and we partake of the Lord's Supper and we pray together, and we give of our means, and, and we preach and we teach, and we lift one another up and encourage one another. We, where do we get that? We got that from Scripture, and it's been handed down to us. And what a great blessing, what a great heirloom that is. But even more important, we follow what Scripture says about how to turn to Christ in the first place. Down through the ages, that has gotten so muddied up that if you go around to different religious groups and ask them, how does a person become a Christian? You're liable to get 15 different answers. And that's if you only ask 14. 
There'll be so many different answers given to that. Not one of them that you'd hear so often today is that you're supposed to say a, what's called the sinner's prayer. You're supposed to recite this little prayer, and that brings you salvation. That prayer's nowhere in the Bible. That's not part of anybody's spiritual heritage. It's just been made up. It's not what the Bible teaches is the way that we come to Christ. And people talk about just inviting Jesus into your heart. What does that mean? What does that look like? How do you do that? The Bible tells us. The Bible tells us what Peter said to those first converts in the second chapter of Acts on the day of Pentecost who, who cried out and said, what do we do? Now, there's a question for you. What do we do? We're lost and we know it. What do we do? And Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's what we tell people today, isn't it? Why? Because that's what we've always been told. That's what the Bible always has said. That's how people turn to Christ through repentance and baptism and God's spirit coming to live within us. It seems strange to a lot of people that we uh, insist on that, that we insist on repentance and being baptized into Jesus, but we do it for only one reason, because that's what scripture says. And that's an heirloom that we have. That's something that's been passed down to us, that conviction that we ought to preach what they preached and we ought to do what they do. And when we preach the gospel, we not only tell people about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, we tell them what the apostles told them, to repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, and that you'll receive the gift of God's Holy Spirit. It's a simple message, but it's a vital message, and we ought to cherish it. So we do have a lot of spiritual heirlooms. And they're kind of like my salt cellar here. They're simple. And kind of like my salt cellar here, they're not valued by the world. The world doesn't care much about our spiritual heirlooms, but we do. The world may tell us that all those things are matters of indifference, but they're not indifferent to us because we know from whom they've come and they've been entrusted to us. And we're to hold fast to that which is good. When I take this salt cellar home this afternoon, I'll put it back on the shelf where it sits. That's not what you and I need to do with our spiritual heirlooms. We don't just put them on the shelf and admire them. Let's be sure that we value them, that we treasure them, that we teach them to each other, that we teach them to those who are outside of Christ. And let's be certain that we are faithful stewards of that which has been entrusted to us. Let's be sure that we test everything, but we hold fast to that which is good. If you want those heirlooms to be yours today, you are welcomed into the family. And we pray that today will be the day you'll want to repent and be baptized in Jesus' name and be baptized into his body. You can come and tell us that while we stand and sing. There is a name.